Good morning, and welcome. If you're a visitor here, we're appreciative of all of you who are here to support Milan and his baptism. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Luke, excuse me, Luke chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 36. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along as we as we read through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to uh, to worship you with song and with meditation upon your word and with fellowship and with the breaking of bread with prayer. We praise you that your son Jesus has paid the price for our sins. You filled us with your spirit so that we might be changed, we might be transformed, so that each and every day of our lives we might look a little bit more like your son. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for his, his blood and his body was given for us. We pray this in your precious and holy Son, Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, him being Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Sorry for coughing so much. And behold, a woman of this city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet, with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. So we're in the closing couple weeks here. We've got this week and next year of the Easter season. Uh, we've got Easter Sunday, which is Resurrection Sunday, which we all celebrate and are happy in. Uh, And and we've the last couple years decided to kind of follow a liturgical pattern and and kind of stay in the theme of Easter for uh, for the Easter season, which is seven weeks. And over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at uh, parables that Jesus uh, told in his earthly ministry, focusing mostly on the grace of God. Uh, Many of the parables that Jesus, when he's talking about the grace of God, he he refers to. Uh, he, he says at the beginning, uh, this is how the 
kingdom of, of, of heaven is or the kingdom of God is. This one's a little bit different. Whereas all the other parables that we've looked at up until this point uh, have, have kind of originated in Jesus' teaching, meaning Jesus is kind of in the flow of thought. He's, he's teaching a, a, a particular theme or he's teaching about a particular thing. Uh, and then he kind of goes into this parable mostly uh, most of the time to kind of emphasize the point that he's trying to make or that he's been trying to make through his teaching. But this one, Jesus tells this parable, which we haven't read yet, just so you know. He, he, he tells this parable in response to the heart of the Pharisee. Now, the reason why we have to address this, the reason why we have to make note of this is because it really kind of changes the structure of how Jesus tells the parable. Up until this point, all the parables that we've looked at have that, that moment of the twist, right? He, get, he forgave the $22 trillion debt. Everybody's shocked. <clears throat> the moment when everybody in the room kind of realizes that Jesus is teaching something contrary or different, maybe from what everybody else had been teaching. And, and in this parable, Jesus is responding to the Pharisee's heart. But we've really already seen the twist. We see the twist when Jesus does not rebuke the sinful woman. Now Jesus is going to emphasize this point here in just a second, and then he's going to emphasize it again before we're through. Let's think about this for just a moment. If we go back to verse 36, we get the context. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's home and he reclined at table. Now, now many of us, if, you've, if you grew up in church or if you've read the Gospels maybe a couple times, you, you start to get this feeling that the Pharisees and Jesus are kind of enemies. And maybe you often wonder to yourself, why is it that Jesus, since he disagrees so strongly with the Pharisees, why is it that Jesus is always with them? See, in our culture today, we have, we have schools, right? You go to school, you sit under teachers, they teach you information. When you get into college, college is maybe a little bit more like what they're experiencing, the disciples of Jesus are experiencing. When you go to college, you pick a college based on kind of the perception of the college. You know, maybe you want to go party, and so you go to the party school. It's got a reputation for partying. Or you go to the, you go to the school that, that is not the party school. Let's hope that that's what you would rather do. But you go to the not party school because it's not a party. You go to the, the Christian college that fits in line with your theological perspective, right? And you go and you sit under the teachers that maybe share the same theological views that you do and are, you're reinforced in them and that's and that's good but in this time it was different in this time primary way teaching happened was through debate conversation one of the reasons in fact that jesus is always interacting with the pharisees is because in large part the pharisees and jesus have the same doctrine the Pharisees are the ones who agree with Jesus that there will be a resurrection from the dead, for example. 
They believe that God is, is, is sovereign and God is in control. Now, where Jesus and the Pharisees differ is a very important matter. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should believe as the Pharisees do. No, on the contrary, certainly not. The Pharisees built up themselves in a very legalistic way to, to, try to try to convince themselves that by my own merits, God loves me. When God, through the whole of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, teaches us that it's His love and His love alone. Jesus very strongly, with the, with the most powerful words that he speaks, most bold and blatant words that Jesus speaks, rebukes the Pharisees for their, uh, for their misunderstanding of what the law was. Paul tells us in Romans that the law is not here to save us. The law is only here to, to illuminate for us our desperate need for a Savior. And this is what Jesus is constantly arguing with the Pharisees about. So it's not really all that unusual for, the, for a Pharisee to ask Jesus into his home. Because it's in these interactions where teaching happens. We're going to have a, a conversation and a debate. And our disciples around us are going to hear us have this conversation. And then they're going to have to figure out what's right and what's wrong. This is the primary way, way of teaching. It's not one teacher, but it's two opposing teachers. It's the, it's the debate model. So this Pharisee, he invites Jesus into his home, and he's likely inviting Jesus into his home to see if they can be on the same page. And you go into the home, and, you, and, and Jesus goes, and he says, it says he's reclining at the table. Now, I've said this before, and inevitably I'll say it again, because we don't really think about reclining at a table like they did. We might think reclining at the table means, oh, meal's over, push back, put the feet up, lean back, you know, unbutton the pants because you ate too much. That's not what's happening. Reclining at the table is the normal, natural posture of eating in this time. You would, you know, the tables are short, and so you would, you would lounge. You'd lay it on a couch, right? Your, your left arm, because being left-handed was not right in the ancient world, and they're wrong about that. But, and they would eat with their right hand, and the person next to you would quite literally be snuggling you. I would have a hard time. So you're laying, and they're kind of in front of you, and your feet... Your dirty, nasty, feces-covered, mud-covered feet would be up probably by somebody's head. Now, behind them, but still. We live in Wayne County, Ohio, or most of us live in Wayne County, Ohio, or are here in Wayne County, Ohio. We know what it's like whenever there's manure out in the fields. We can smell it. It doesn't take much. He's reclining at the table with the Pharisees. Now, likely... There's two scenarios. The Pharisee, who is the owner of the home, he might be in the position of honor. Maybe. And the person who Jesus, who is invited in, Jesus, the primary person who is invited in, is probably going to be to his right. So Pharisee's laying, Jesus in front of him. Or, more likely, Jesus is the person of honor because he was the primary person invited into the home. So Jesus is sitting at the place of honor, and the owner of the home is sitting right to his right in front of him. It's lounging right in front of him. This will matter in just a second. Verse 37 says, And behold, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, if you've been here before, you already know this. I believe that every single person in this room is a sinner. 
including me. We are all sinners. But some of us have sins that are more visible. Jesus, or excuse me, Luke, the author of this gospel, he's emphasizing something here by showing us that the Pharisees invited Jesus into the home. And then this woman of the city who is a sinner has, has come in. So there's, this, there's these two people who are set in contrast. The Pharisee is a sinner. He is a sinner. But his sins are less obvious. His sins are sins of the heart. Pride. His pride in his holiness and righteousness and being able to do all these good things that the law commands him to do. Which isn't a bad thing to be to be doing the things that the law commands you to do. He's got pride. He's he's probably in his own eyes God to himself. I'm going to rescue me. I'm going to be the one who saves me by doing all these things right and not doing anything wrong. But this woman, on the other hand, she's she's not like the Pharisee. She's different. She's a sinner, and she is. Obviously so, a sinner. Maybe this means that she's a prostitute. Or maybe a former prostitute. Maybe she had demons. Or maybe she just wasn't a nice person. Calling people names. It doesn't really matter. What, it, what matters is that it's the obvious realization that this woman is a sinner. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows she's a sinner. She came in. She heard that Jesus was reclining at the table with the Pharisees. And she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And she stands behind him, behind him where his feet are. And she's crying and and her tears are falling down on his feet. And she takes her hair, which, by the way, is the, the pride of a woman in the ancient world, right? It was the thing that made her attractive. We have different standards today. Standards of beauty have changed through history and changed in different cultures. Today it's the, it's the thin, athletic, uh, you know, dark-skinned woman. 150 years ago it was the larger woman who was able to be in her home and she was pale white and she was able to eat in excess because that meant wealth. And that was the picture of beauty. Beauty changes through history. In the ancient world, beauty was a woman's hair. This is one of the reasons why Peter tells us not to braid our hair because it was trying to flaunt. It would be like saying, maybe you shouldn't, you shouldn't dress provocatively. It's the same analogy. She takes down her hair and she's crying at Jesus' dirty, nasty, filthy feet. And we know that they're dirty, nasty, and filthy because uh, Simon, the Pharisee here, he didn't wash Jesus' feet like he was supposed to. So Jesus' feet are gross and nasty and she comes in and she's crying on his feet and she's cleaning his feet with her hair and she's kissing his feet. Gross! It's disgusting, right? We, we've, we've talked about this story before. We just talked about it out of, the, I think, the book of John, right? In John's gospel, John is emphasizing something very different than Luke will. We'll see that in just a second. But the same principle teaching is here. This is an amazing act of worship towards Jesus. She dumps out an expensive bottle of perfume on his feet. She's crying and weeping at his feet, washing his feet, serving him. 
loving Jesus. It's a tremendous act of worship. It's a self-sacrificial act of worship, which, by the way, should always be our worship, self-sacrificial. We should be giving ourselves to our God in worship. Both in singing, in our livelihoods, and in how we study the Bible, we should always be giving ourselves over to the one who has saved us. And this sinful woman here, she gets it. In very typical Pharisee fashion, here comes Pharisee man, he says, Hey, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, Now, up until this point, it seems like the Pharisee is testing Jesus, seeing if what he's doing, the miracles he's performing, the sermons he's been preaching, see if these things line up. Let's maybe see how how is he doing. let's, let's, Let's talk to them. Let's have an intimate conversation. Let's snuggle up, eat a meal, and talk about his beliefs. If this man were a prophet, he would know. Ha ha. You would have known who and what sort of woman she was. She is. It was touching him. He'd just feel the, the judgment coming out of his voice. What a sinner. How can, this, how can this man, a teacher, interact with sinners? I want to drive that point home for just a second. Jesus is accused many, many times of eating with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. We read that and we go, that doesn't make any sense. They would be mad at this. But this is what what self-pride in my own ability to save myself leads to. If you can't be as good as me, you you don't have the right to be with me. This Pharisee, Simon, he says, look, you don't, he should know that she's a sinner and therefore doesn't deserve his presence. Aren't we glad, loved ones of God, that Jesus wasn't the same way as Simon? Aren't we happy that Jesus isn't the way that we are because we are all this way at some level? Let's be real with each other. Aren't we happy that Jesus doesn't look at us, wretched sinners that we are, and say, get away, don't touch me. And so Jesus, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. I love it when Jesus responds to something that wasn't vocalized. This is what, this is what Simon was thinking, not what Simon said. Simon was thinking this, and Jesus said, hey, hey, pay attention a second. I got something to tell you. I'm going to challenge you here for just a minute. And so he tells him this parable. Verse 41, and it's a short one. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, a day's wage denarii, and the other 50, 50 denarii, 50 days. About a year and a half debt, a year and a half's worth of works debt, and about a month and a half's worth worth. Of debt. He says, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Did you get the twist? 
We've, we've already seen it once. We, we saw it once. What was it? What was the twist? What did Jesus do that was shocking? He didn't rebuke the woman for worshiping him at his feet. Simon, he's like, you should tell her to stop. She's a sinner. And Jesus goes, I know. That's why I'm letting her worship at my feet. And then he tells this parable. He says, you got a debtor. Two debt, two debts are held. Two different people. One has a year and a half of debt, and one has a month and a half of debt. And he says, your debts are forgiven. Again, this is shocking to us. This, this, this is universal. Money is universal. I don't care if you have $10 and don't even have a bank account. Because if you open a bank account, they just laugh at you. Like me. Or if you have $10 billion in the bank. It doesn't matter. We all understand debt. We all understand the, the weight that money has upon us. Let's just imagine for a second. Let's set this scenario up. Let's say you have a house mortgage. Many of you have home, home mortgages. You own a home, but the bank owns more of it. And let's pretend that there's another debt that you have, another loan that you have. Now, this loan is for your car. Which one's bigger? Hopefully, which one's bigger? <laughs> Any more? Maybe a $50,000 vehicle? That seems a little absurd, but... They're forgiven. Now, Jesus in no way is suggesting that the person who has the 50 denarii debt is ungrateful for the forgiveness. Right? Imagine you have a car loan and you have a house loan and your car loan gets forgiven. Are you going to grumble at the one who forgave your loan? No. Let's make it a little bit more realistic. Let's say you have a car loan and you have a, you have a get me to my paycheck loan. You got one week's worth of work versus probably a couple years' worth of work in your car anymore. Now imagine you, you went to your boss and you asked your boss, hey, I, I just, I really need my paycheck now. Is there any way I can get an advance on that? And he says, yeah, that's fine. And then payday comes around, the payday that's supposed to be skipped here. He says, you know what? We just decided to let you have that extra money. Anybody in here going to grumble at him? Go ahead, raise your hands high up, high up in the air. No. Because we all understand money and debt. And Jesus tells us, look, what both of them have been forgiven. And how happy are we? But Jesus asks a very important question. Which one? Which one? Which one is happier? Clearly the bigger one, right? Even Simon gets it. He says, Simon answers him. The one I suppose, he knows what's happening. The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. You forgive my car loan, I'm going to be happy. But I'm not going to be ha as happy as the person who has their house forgiven. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that there's a realization here of something. Right? Verse 44, and it says, Then turning toward the woman, he said, he said to Simon, to turn, he turned towards the woman. He says to Simon, now, let's, let's picture this. And let's just, let's just say that Simon put Jesus at the position of honor and Simon's to his right. 
Jesus looks down at his feet, and he looks at the woman, and, and Simon's kind of in his peripheral here, and he says, he says, look here. Look at this woman. Imagine for a minute that you're the woman, and you hear Jesus saying this. Look at, the, look at this woman. Says, do you see? Do you, do you see her? Do you see this woman? He says, I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. You didn't even do the culturally acceptable thing. You gave me no water to wash my feet. My feet stink. They're nasty. But but this woman, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Again, a, a cultural greeting. No kiss, but for the time from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil. Now, this one might not be so normal of a practice, but, but she has anointed my feet with oil. She has worshipped me, is what Jesus is saying. She has shown me immense love. Why? Because her debt, a sinner, is larger than Simon's. Now, we know from our perspective, that Simon's debt and this woman's debt are the same. We know that the wages of sin is death. We know that when Jesus says, or when, excuse me, when God says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not covet, he's not saying that thou shalt not covet is a lesser crime. I can see murder, but I can't see covetousness. No. The separation is the same. We all have to borrow from a couple weeks ago a $22 trillion debt that has been forgiven us. She gets it and she's worshiping me. Therefore, I tell you, her sin, her sins, which are many, he's not saying they're not, are forgiven, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who, is, he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then oh. those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? You know who he is, right? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Three times Jesus hammers this point home, right? He doesn't rebuke her whenever she starts touching him. She tells Simon that she has the bigger debt and will worship him. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. The biggest shock of them all. Your sins are forgiven. See, we, we live in this we live in this challenging place. Maybe we can say it in a different way. We see in this passage the challenging place that we live in. Right? Because we 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 assume at this point, because we compare this 
this story with the other gospel accounts of the story. We, we recognize that this, this sinful woman already knows Jesus and Jesus already knows her. In John's account, we find that the reason why she comes in is because she's, she's worshiping Jesus for raising her brother Lazarus from the dead. She gets and understands the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has bestowed upon her and her family. What more, more perfect image of raising a dead man to life is there when we compare our sinful natures being forgiven and being going from death to life? She gets it. We recognize that she already knows Jesus. We recognize that she already knows that her sins have been forgiven. So what is Jesus saying whenever he says, her sins, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. It seems like he's saying, it seems like he's saying, because she has shown me this act of worship, I'm forgiven her sins. But that doesn't make any sense because Jesus has literally just showed us the opposite progression. Because you have a debt forgiven, you are loving more. And this act of worship is an act of love. We live in this weird state where both of these things are true. Because we are forgiven by Jesus, we worship Him. And because we worship Him, we are forgiven by Jesus. And because He has forgiven us, we worship Him. And it's this continuous growth of beauty. Isn't that fantastic? But listen, lest we forget. She worships much, much because she has much forgiven. We are not 50 denarii debtors. We're not even 500 denarii debtors. We're 10,000 talent debtors. We have a debt that's so absurd that we can't even fathom how big it is. And, and here, what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. I, I told you a minute ago to pretend like you're this woman. Sometimes it's really easy, I think, to imagine the weight of Jesus' glance. Imagine for a minute you're this woman and you hear Jesus' words. You are forgiven. Loved ones, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, our only response is worship. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, right? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we are to be, we are to be living sacrifices. We give, we give of our of our time and our efforts and our and our compassion and our love and our and our good actions. We give those to God out of worship for Him because of what He has done for us. Be living sacrifices, acts of worship to him. Our only response to the forgiveness of Christ in our lives is to worship him. But, but those of you who are here who do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I need you to hear me for a second. 
I don't normally do this because it makes people feel uncomfortable, but I'm going to do it anyway. Close your eyes for a minute as we close. Close your eyes for a minute and just imagine for just a moment. You've entered into the room and in front of you, you see Jesus reclining at the table. You know you're a sinner. And you know that he knows you're a sinner. Imagine you start to wash his feet with your tears. And you sense a challenge. And then you see, as you look up at your Savior, you see his eyes are locked upon you. And you hear his words. Loved one of God, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Great, gracious, and merciful God. We really have no words to say to adequately express our thankfulness for those words to us. All we want to do in response is to worship you. To worship you with song. To worship you with meditation on the word. To worship you in good actions. To worship you in prayer. To worship you in our lives. In our jobs. With our families as we drive to worship you with our fellowship, to worship you with everything that we are, to without fear or hesitation, to pour out ourselves upon your good and gracious and merciful Son, Jesus, who came freely to this earth to give his life as a ransom for my wretched self. We praise your name, Lord, now and always. It is in and for the glory of your Son, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen.